Welcome back to the Stretch 4 Podcast. It is Tuesday and we are reporting live, recording live here in our Stretch 4 Media Studio, which is pretty much wherever I can get a quiet space to record this podcast in San Francisco. Today's show is power-packed. I have an interview with Tanvi Sarti, who is the founder of Luca. Tanvi is a very interesting person. I got a chance to meet her back in November when she was looking for ideas for a new startup. And I just interviewed her for the podcast, and she recently completed YC. Um, she's building an AI-powered e-commerce platform. So we'll get deep into the weeds of that. She has an interesting background, spending 10 years at, between Microsoft and Uber prior to launching Luca. I'm also following up on a story I reported on the first ever Stretch for podcast episode about the new chip accelerator. Uh, it was confirmed this week or this past week that the accelerator was bankrupt. There was interesting information article put out by Kate Clark. I also talked with Yanni Rubin, who was someone who almost got caught in the new chip scam, but he essentially gave us his experience with going through the application product process as well as being a mentor. So those two stories to cover on this week's episode, I am speaking and presenting at the Finnovate Spring Conference here in San Francisco. Actually, today, when you're hearing this, if you're hearing this recording today, that's where I'll be at all day today and tomorrow on Wednesday. Check out last week's episode as I interviewed Vidal Nelson on his fitness journey, uh, getting some good feedback on that podcast as well. And expect more episodes on this channel. I'm moving to two episodes a week, so you'll get this on Tuesday, and I'll have another founder interview out on Thursday. Hope everyone's doing well. Let's get started with the show. This is a Stretch 4 podcast, and we're back with another episode. This week on this segment, we're talking about the new chip accelerator. Uh, if you all have been listeners of the podcast, on the very first episode, we had mentioned the new chip accelerator program, which is based in Texas. I was brought to my attention on Twitter from a kind of now viral tweet storm by Josh Browder, founder of Do Not Pay, where he spoke about some scrupulous activity going on with New Chip. I talked about it. I had personally experienced some things after that show. We had many people outreach, do outreach to me and say that they did confirm that they thought there were some fishy things going on. Lo and behold, I'll play this clip. And today we actually have a special guest on the show who has some insights into what went down behind the scenes with Nuchep. And his name is Yanni Rubini. He's the founder and CEO at Margin, M-R-G-N, which is a business intelligence platform for small businesses. Yanni, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Appreciate having you. Appreciate you having me. Great, great. So let's dive right into Nuchep. Story is, you know, earlier in the year, we found out that New Chip had some very interesting practices where they were charging founders to participate in their accelerator after telling them they would give them money. Then they had some ongoing fees, just a lot of scrupulous activity that was allegedly happening. This week, the CEO made an announcement on LinkedIn that the actual accelerator was now going bankrupt. Yanni, you uh, have been in, involved somewhat with New Chip. New Chip. Maybe maybe to start, how did you find out about the new chip accelerator, and what was your experience, or what has your experience been like with the program? Yeah, sure. So I'll start by telling you a little bit about what I've been through over the last several years in my career. So I've been a mentor in a handful of different accelerators for about maybe four or five years now. 
So Newtip approached me proactively asking for, uh, for me to join as a mentor probably about two or three years ago. So that was my, that's how I got to know them. And then it's probably about maybe six or seven months ago that as a founder, I applied for Newtip after having really kind of being pulled in by their value proposition of we'll get you set up and ready for fundraising. And by the end of the accelerator, you should be fully, uh, fully capitalized basically. And then there's a fee associated with it. So that's how I got to know them. I'll pause there and you can take me in any direction and then I can kind of tell, go deeper in, into what, what transpired. Yeah. So you started off as a mentor and then what, as a mentor, were you marketed to, to participate as a founder yourself or did you, you know, opt into it and say, Hey, this would be a good thing for me. I'm starting a new company or how did you transition from mentor to applicant? So no, I was not marketed to when I was, uh, when they came to me literally through a LinkedIn message asking, uh, if I was interested in mentorship opportunities. And then I on my own decided, Hey, this might be a good program, but I'll use that to kind of segue into, into what transpired and just, you know, stop me and, and take me in any direction you want. So as a mentor, my experience was pretty, I would call it bleak in best case scenario in that. Newtip seemed to have invested a good deal of capital into a software platform that was meant to facilitate mentor-founder relationships and engagement. And unfortunately, it didn't seem like anybody was actually using the platform. So when I became a mentor, I think I had, I, you know what, if I remember correctly, I was actually introduced to one founder in, uh, in the old-fashioned manual way, just via email, without the use of their platform. And that founder never got, never responded to me. I think I responded to them with a, with a Calendly link. They never responded to me, which is fine in terms of the founder. That's a hundred percent their choice. And then once we got fully onboarded onto the mentor platform, then it was basically complete silence across the board. There was a lot of one interesting thing that I do like that they did, um, which I haven't seen other programs do is offer equity to mentors. The problem with it was that they they so they had you manually tracking your mentorship hours, which was fine. Then naturally, that data has to get into the system in some form or fashion. But it was very very unclear how it all translated into equity. Not necessarily not necessarily the value of an hour for a, a share of any kind, but rather what's the process? They never had a sign, if I remember correctly, never really had a sign official. ESOP type of documents or anything regarding NQOs, non-qualified stock options and things like that. So whether it was an ISO or an NQO under the, uh, or an ISO under the ESOP or an NQO, I, it was a very, very unclear process. Now that alone doesn't, you know, doesn't really say an entire, an entire, uh, like a, a whole big amount about Newchip. Everybody's got their organization flaws and things like that. And that's perfectly fine. What did, what did irk me a little bit was the just a complete and utter lack of activity on the platform. So, but that was again, not enough to yell anything from the top of the mountain. So several months ago, I think it was an outreach on their part to me, not as a mentor, just as someone in the ecosystem, a founder in the ecosystem where they said, Hey, you might be a good fit for, uh, for our accelerator. Why don't you come and talk to us? So I hopped on a call. I remember exactly who it was with and we hopped on a couple of calls. And what happened was this person was basically called them an A of some kind. They were in a sales role. And in the accelerator world, that's a, that's kind of an odd thing for a founder to be in, to encounter. Now, Newtip, as far as I know, for the longest time has been charging and I have no problem with the pay to play uh, model. If it works, they can test out their business model. If it works, fantastic. There's probably an audience out there for it. Where things went wrong was during the their recruitment process of me, 
Number one is they have you sign a shrink wrap agreement, meaning you go to their website and it's like a terms of service that is very much, it's not hidden, but it's not done so in a very transparent way. Meaning when you negotiate contracts, typically you enter into an agreement. Naturally, you can go sign up for Facebook, Google, Instagram, whatever it is, and you'll sign a shrink wrap agreement because you know those terms of service are probably meaningless. In this particular case, there were equity ramifications. And so that's very important to us to understand, hey, what are we getting into? Are we giving away the farm? Is the valuation too low? Whatever it might be. So I asked them for a Word document version of the terms of service off the website, which they refused to give me. So what I did was I just simply copied and pasted it, threw it into Word and reviewed it myself, redlined it and found just a couple of minor issues, not minor issues, but issues around like, for example, if you get kicked out of the program, then the equity that you give up to them still remains with them. So basically, if you get kicked out for cause, then they get to keep that equity. Now, normally that would be okay. The problem there is that if you get kicked out for cause, you haven't gotten any value out of the program, unless you're getting kicked out on the very last day. Because in theory, by the end of the program, you're supposed to be fully capitalized and they're supposed to help you get there. So if they're gonna, if they're gonna cut you loose for whatever reason, for cause, no cause, then those warrants have to go as well because ultimately they're just not providing value. Now, at the same time, from their perspective, they want to say, well, if we cancel those, like we have to, we have to incentivize founders to be, you know, to behave properly and do things, you know, above board and not get kicked out for cause. So I see both sides of that, but it was a little wishy-washy of a process. So anyways, I got back to them. I said something like, uh, if I remember correctly, I had mentioned something around the equity and then they, here's where things got interesting. So it was probably into, I think it was the first call. I think they were pretty transparent about the fee. So I don't think there were issues around transparency about the actual fee, but what happened was they had proposed a $7,500 fee for our company to join the accelerator. And first off, $7,500. Now they do offer scholarships and, and whatever you want to call them, some, you know, discounts or whatever. $7,500 on the face of it is pretty lucrative for an angel to precede stage company. Pre-seed generally are not very well funded at that point, unless you've completed your pre-seed stage, at which point you might be a little too mature for new tips. So the price point was a little funky for me. So I went and did a little bit of research, got online, searched for different forums and, and places that people were having discussions around specifically new tip fees. And what I found was eye-opening. Uh, what I found was a lot of different people saying that they were told completely different prices. Not a difference of $100 here and there, but a difference of thousands and thousands of dollars. What was the range? Like, um, there are forums out there. Ranges? Like, was it 75 at the bottom? Was that on the high end? Where, where, how were they? So, yeah, so 7,500 yeah, 7, was on the high end. And I saw others at, 20, at a, I think, a price point around 2,300, 3,500, if I remember correctly. So it was probably anywhere between two and 8,000 something along those lines. And that's when I started questioning things. I said, you know what, that, that, if, if you're an accelerator, pay for play makes sense, but the fee has got to be 100% flat. And then you can use discounts or scholarships, really not so much discounts, but scholarships, if a company is not well funded enough to meet that, meet that requirement, then absolutely. But um, there are other ways to go about it in a more diplomatic way, like, hey, when you get funded, then you pay us. And they didn't have that option. So that's when things started getting a little fishy for me. Then what happened was at the time we weren't willing to pay, we weren't willing to acquiesce to their demands after, uh, especially after seeing the, the variance in the discussions across the internet. And maybe several months later, I said, you know what, let's give this a shot. Or, you know, I think it was probably because it took me so long to review their agreement. Their agreement ended up being like 20 pages, 18 pages or something. 
And I was like, an 18 page agreement for this is insane. Like you're asking for free accelerator. Exactly. Like without them actually giving you, exactly. right? I mean, I could see if they're, you know, I've seen accelerators that are giving you 100K, 200K, half a million, their docs, their notes, they have these long lists, they have all the things they're looking for, side letters, which is perfectly fine if you're capitalizing the business. But if you're charging someone uh, any amount of money for an accelerator, you would think that you would, you know, you would need a 20 page document to get signed just to, to get, to get, a, to become official. But that also adds yep. that. You nailed, yeah, you nailed it. That makes that makes sense though. If they were, if no, they no, were no. Keep going. Scrupulous, they want to cover their ass essentially by adding in all this legalese <laughs> around what you're signing up for. So, so exactly. to, to kind of end this, exactly. Yanni, we I found out about you. The CEO posts uh, two bankruptcy letter announcements this week on LinkedIn. Obviously, a lot of people had different points. You know, he had some people that were fans of the program and were giving the him ha of like, sorry, this happened. Then there were people like you that were like pretty outspoken about the experience. This is not a surprise. And, you know, the, the initial Twitter storm that I saw back in January was, you know, it kind of ripped everything apart. It went through every contract and just how they were running this program, almost kind of like, you know, not Ponzi schemish, but there was a little bit of like, this is like multi-level marketing for, for startup accelerators. But I saw you post that with the CEO's letter. Were you surprised this week when you heard that the 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 the, the company went bankrupt? Because I'm assuming you didn't participate. So I'm not even a little bit. But we did not participate. I wasn't even a little bit surprised because there's more information that I came to find out over the last couple of months. So first off, on the last point that you made regarding the contract, um, I think there was probably, I don't remember off the top of my head, but I'm going to say there were probably three times as many mentions as you would expect around their protection of your warrants, meaning the warrants that you were granting to them. Um, it, I mean, they, it was just sprinkled in there so many times to drive the point home that we are hanging on to your warrants no matter what happens. And the second oddity was that they basically took a legal document. One of the reasons it was 20 pages long was because they mixed into it their entire, basically, um, founder handbook. So all the rules and regulations around what you do in the accelerator, all these things that are not legally binding, were in the legal contract. And I was like, guys, let me get through the legal step first. Let's, you know, establish that the terms make sense. We'll sign up to the accelerator, and then you can tell us what we, you know, how to do it, whether it's before or after we sign up, but not a part of the legal review process. So anyways, that, that was the stuff that got me kind of... Uh, um, you know, sniffing out uh, uh, some of the oddities that I found across New Chip. And then over the last couple of months, maybe two or three months, um, I've had some feelers out there. So uh, I have some friends who are, you know, GMs of different programs, uh, VCs, angels, so on and so forth. And I found out that <clears throat> through someone who had formerly walked it, worked at New Chip, that basically it was a meat market of salespeople, applying pressure to them that they could never, ever, ever stand up to. And it was just all about money, 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 cash flow into their pockets through these fees alone. And so the major point that I tried to get across to the CEO when I responded to, when I responded to him on LinkedIn was that they boast this 5,000 venture portfolio of companies that have gone through their program. Sometimes they say 2,500, sometimes they say 5,000. You notice how their numbers are a little wishy-washy. Same thing around the pricing, right? In his open letter, he didn't mention anything above 3500 if I'm not mistaken, for the fees when, in fact, we were told 7500 So I said to him, I was like, if you've got 5,000 companies, if you've got equity in 5,000 companies, 
then you shouldn't need any of these fees. You could have numerous, numerous unicorns amongst that, and you could be promoting that on your on your success story page, on your website, and so on and so forth. And so there were just things that didn't add up. And so when I started hearing rumblings from former employees, there was no surprise whatsoever. Wow. That's a crazy story, Yanni. Well, glad you dodged the bullet. Didn't They didn't get you for 7500 It looks to be that the organization is now bankrupt. And it's really just a compelling story for founders because I think as the commercialization of venture capital and startups and, you know, this is a podcast really devoted to venture back uh, founder stories, uh, it really is a telling story that you have scrupulous people and, you know, just like any industry, but to try to build a business on the backs of, you know, pre-seed, call it, you know, pre-invested companies is pretty, pretty uh, not a good way to go about it. So thank you for coming on and sharing. Yanni. Um, great to have you on. And thanks for showing the short story about new chip. Great to have you all here today. Uh, this is Matt Parker, host of the stretch Four podcast. I am here with a very special guest today, Miss Tanvi Surti, who is a recent member of the YC 2023 batch with her new company called Luca, which is an AI pricing tool for retailers. Tanvi's on the show today because she has a very broad uh, coverage of experience. Uh, that's the right terminology. She's been at big companies like Microsoft, fast growth startups that became big companies like Uber. And today she's now running a startup herself. Uh, she is an expert on pricing algorithms and how those algorithms are used to make powerful decision systems as she was one of the lead product folks that built the Uber Pool app, which is graciously came back post COVID. She's been at the forefront of building out cutting edge, cutting edge technology across the board. And she joins us today from her home in San Francisco to talk about her journey from big tech to entrepreneurship. And we're gonna unlock some secrets to her success and how she's currently building her, her current company. Tanvi, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Matt. Great. Well, let's jump right in. We met maybe like not even six, seven months ago. Yeah, six uh, months. I was reaching out to you or maybe you reached out to me. We met each other. You, you at that point were working through various ideas. You hadn't incorporated. You hadn't really set up any, you know, anything like a company yet. You did have the idea to do it, but you were still very early in the process of that and your experience, your, your time then was mostly spent on just having conversations with potential customers. I think that was our conversation around like, how do we, I even get to talk to the right people? Fast forward to today where we're recording this in early May, you now, I email you from your new company domain, uh, which you could talk about your fast growth. You've raised, you recently raised a seed round of funding. You completed YC. You have this new company, Luca, right in the middle of AI and the revolution that's happening there. Uh, tell me how, from the first time we talked to now, what what's this this roller coaster been like for you? Well, uh, when you say it so succinctly, Matt, it feels like a very linear journey. It certainly wasn't, and I can tell you that roller coaster is absolutely the right word. So to back up a bit, I've been at Uber for a really long time, and in 2022, as I was reflecting on what the next chapter of my life looks like, it felt like I needed to be in a place or I needed to put myself in a position 
where I took myself out of my comfort zone. I'd done the big tech thing for 10 years, five years at Microsoft, five years at Uber. I knew how to navigate big organizations. I knew how to grow myself and my teams in big organizations. But I found myself getting further and further away as I went up the management chain from actually executing and building businesses. And I thought that the time in my life was right for me to get my hands dirty again and build something from scratch. So I left Uber with somewhat of a loose structure of a plan, but not very much figured out. I knew I wanted to work in the general algorithmic pricing discounting space. I had seen how powerful it was at Uber and I I had a ton of conviction. That is a space that was very underserved, but I had to spend a ton of time researching verticals, doing cold outreach on LinkedIn, reaching deep into my network. That's in fact how you and I got connected. I was on Twitter and I saw a tweet from you and I decided that I had to speak with you and reached out. And I, I did a lot of that for multiple months. And not just with potential customers, but also with potential co-founders and collaborators. I was doing a lot of coffee chats and just trying to meet people. That's been, that was the early part of that journey before stuff started to take a shape and before I started to get conviction in what I'm doing right now around pricing for retail. Awesome. That's a very great under, you know, it's always good to see how things come full circle. And I think a lot of times, you know, this podcast is really focused around the early stage founder experience as it pertains to people like you who are building, but also people who are probably still on the sidelines per se, working at large companies, thinking about what the next idea is. But I think you laid it out very well. So at the high level of the conversation, and obviously we want to dive into your background and what got you to this point, but would love to know kind of what Luca, what this decision that you've built, you know, decision you decided to pursue this op- opportunity. Talk a bit about Luca, the opportunity and the pain point you're solving for particularly the retail industry, which I believe you're, you're focused on. Yeah. So Luca is an AI-based pricing co-pilot for large retailers. Today, the way most retailers make pricing decisions is they have a spreadsheet and a bunch of people get in a room and have some basic cost plus margin formula and set a price and follow very similar processes every time they need to change prices or run a discount. The reason this is pretty unsophisticated is it doesn't consider what the central question of any pricing decision should be, which is, How much is someone willing to pay for this product? Not quite how much this product costs to make. So that customer willingness to pay is referred to as elasticity. What is at the heart of Luca is we help large retailers figure out what customer elasticities are and then back our way into the right price for the right product at the right time so that they're always making as much money on their bottom line, top line, and units sell through uh, that they can for their business and doing this at a large retail scale. The reason this is a pretty challenging problem is think of pricing as a multidimensional chess game. You have inventory data. How much of a product do you have in your warehouse? you have competitor signal where your competitors are changing prices and changing their strategies all the time. So you have to react. You have seasonality. 
So if you're selling swimsuits, customer willingness to pay in the summer looks very different than the winter. You have historical signal from promotions and historical products you have sold. You have cross elasticities. So if you increase the product price of one SKU, it might impact how your other SKUs sell. And try to think about pulling all of that together into making a decision about a price. It's impossible. It's impossible for humans to make that decision in a spreadsheet. That's where Luca's artificial intelligence comes in. We wrap in all these input signals to make holistic and thorough pricing decisions that are optimized. That's why this is a hard problem. And that's why I believe it's an important one. Wow. Um, that's a great, great synopsis. It looks like you went through YC and you've understood how to tell your problem very well. So yeah. maybe to pinpoint some of these questions, you know, kind of to back into how you got into this space. From my research on this interview, you were one of the early product managers at Uber that built Uber Pool. And this product, which, you know, there's, we could talk about the price of Uber and if it'll ever be a profitable business, or is it just something we use? It's a great service that'll never be a profitable business. But I do remember, you know, very vividly using Uber Pool, both here in San Francisco when I moved here in 2017, as well as when I lived in DC prior to that as a, as a service that was actually very useful, right? It almost, it, you know, it was almost too good to be true. Uh, talk a bit about how you, what was what were early days of Uber Pool like creating this type of product, this dynamically priced product that you had to have two people in a car going in the same direction to even make it work logistically, but you were ha handling a lot of the pricing and trying to figure out how to even make it a product that is viable from a price point. Maybe talk a bit about your time at Uber and, and specifically on building the Uber Pool product. Yeah, and you know, to answer that question, I'm going to go back a couple of years and explain the story of how I even landed the role at Uber that I did. So my first experience with Uber Pool was in 2015 as someone who didn't work at Uber, but was just a user. And I was visiting San Francisco and I was trying to get from Hayes Valley to Portrero Hill. And uh, I opened up my Uber app and I saw this new product, Uber Pool, which was $5 to go from East Valley to Portrero Hill, which, you know, it's pretty cheap, all things considered. And I clicked on it and a car pulls up and there are three other people in the car. And uh, I get in and the person sitting next to me turns to me and says, welcome to San Francisco, where VCs subsidize your cheap public transport. And that quote really stayed with me as like ominous foreshadowing. Because I was like, wow, this product is magic. Four people in a car, we were all going to Hayes Valley and it only cost me $5. And the unit economics work out. Man, these people at Uber have something figured out. And I was so enamored by this experience that I said, I want to work for Uber and I want to work on this product. So fast forward a year or so, I'm ready to leave Microsoft and I start interviewing at Uber, specifically on the Uber Pool team, because I just thought that the product was wonderful. And I make it through the interviews and now I'm on the Uber Pool team. The product already existed and had existed for a couple of years at that point. And I start working on Uber Pool and I realize that the matching and the pricing tech is incredibly sophisticated. But at the same time, it's a deeply subsidized product. And Uber was losing copious amounts of money trying to make these $5 Uber Pools work. 
because essentially our hypothesis was if you make these products cheap enough, enough people will take them. And when enough people take them, you will make enough matches. And when you make enough matches, the unit economics work out. And like we believed that there would be a feedback loop once the prices were lowered enough to create enough demand to aggregate. It's a reasonable hypothesis, but ultimately that's not how it ended up working out because the odds that you can get a bunch of people together on any given route going in the same direction at the same time are incredibly low. If you go out of downtown San Francisco or if you go out of Manhattan, there's a lot more sparsity and you, you can't actually aggregate demand at that scale. So all this to say, when I started to see how it kind of worked on the inside, I realized that the tech was great, but the unit economics were not great. And uh, this was around the time Uber was starting to think about an IPO. And it was supposed to be this mega bumper IPO. And we were looking very closely at our books and very closely at the P&L. And we realized when we looked at the Uber pool business, that Uber pool was losing such copious amounts of money. And I, I won't say the specific numbers here, but so much money that we talked about shutting the product down. We had an executive leadership conversation and they said, okay, you guys have 10 months to turn the business around or we will shut it down completely. And uh, that started the most interesting year of my professional life. My team and I got together and essentially reconfigured and rethought Uber Pool's pricing strategy from the ground up. We realized we could no longer afford to give out incredibly cheap Uber Pool trips for next to nothing and essentially have people in a car by themselves. And that process, that year, made me realize that very same technology over scale was immensely powerful because over the course of that 10 month period, we plugged this PL hole in Uber's business and we got Uber pool working at margin neutral all through pricing tech, like experimentation, pricing elasticity models and operations tools that let operators set specific pricing strategies. That experience over that 10 month period of turning the Uber pool business around gave me the idea for Luca and what I'm doing right now. Wow, that's an amazing story. And, you know, you're testing this out with Luca and with Luca specifically, you're targeting retailers. I mean, you talked about it at the top with just the overarching experience, but maybe dig a bit deeper in how who who is like the actual end user of Luca as it pertains in the day to day. Right. I mean, I think about when I go online and shop at, you know, one of my favorite brands right now is John Elliott, right? They have like kind of like a higher end men's brand, women's brand, but they have in this like flash sale right now. And I believe the flash sale initially was supposed to be for like 24 hours when I first got the email. It's still going on. So I'm thinking mm. in the back of my mind, like maybe they didn't do as well as they wanted to. So they're extending mm. it. How, you know, maybe taking that as an example, how do retailers think about that as it pertains to like a flash sale that maybe you start it with like a, a a set amount of time, but then you don't hit your numbers. Do do these retailers use tools like Luca to figure out 
how they should price, how long they should run a sale, what the percentage of discount should be. Maybe walk me through from the, the retail side of the house of, of how they think about these types of, uh, of offerings. Yeah. So I think that's a great example. And I can't speak to the specific operations behind John Elliott, but I had, if I had to guess what happened behind the scenes, is there is a pricing manager or, or, a, or a marketing manager who's looking at their inventory and saying, okay, we've got to get rid of this much product to make room for our summer line. And we've got to get rid of all of this stuff. Our revenue targets are X. We're willing to give it out at like a 5% net margin outcome. We think that if we set it at like a 30% discount site-wide, we should more or less get to that outcome and empty everything in our warehouse. Let's send an email out. And like, if I had to guess, like that's the level of process that has happened behind the scenes. Like some business goals, some timeline goals, and then you kind of make something live and see what happens. And when people run processes like that at large retailers, it kind of misses the nuance of product level and seasonal elasticities. So essentially, at this time and place for your customer set, based on historical data, how much, how many units do you think you'll be able to move? And that is a very hard forecasting problem that most retailers don't have the data science muscle in-house to solve. You actually need pretty sophisticated forecasting models that actually look at historical promotion behavior and current kind of sell-through rate in order to make those outcomes crisp and then use that to back into the level of discount that you should apply and the timeline for which you should apply it. That's where a tool like Luca comes in. We provide like forecasting capabilities such that you're able to set pretty informed thresholds for how much you should discount, what time frame you should discount for, and what revenue and margin uplift you should you should expect. And that kind of input output is what a pricing brain like ours is is able to do. Hmm. Okay. So that makes that makes sense. And the other part of it is obviously you mentioned data science, and and this is all kind of happening in real time. I mean, even when we spoke originally, you know, eight months ago or whatever, AI wasn't. I don't even know if ChatGPT mm-hmm. had publicly launched at that point, but obviously it has now, and it's created this like massive revolution of AI, and everybody in every business now is thinking about AI in the core, it's in the forefront of everybody's product roadmap. Talk a bit about that revolution, Mm -hmm. how it pertains to you, obviously with Luca, but also your background. You've been doing this, you know, I was looking at some of the stuff research and you were doing AI related, data science related presentation seven years ago at Microsoft, talking about some of the same things that are now top of mind for everybody. But talk a bit about how that's happened so fast. I think even like with YC's latest batch, large percentage were AI first companies. Talk a bit about how it's going and kind of maybe give your opinion on, is it is it overhyped? Is it somewhere in the middle or are, are we just scratching the surface with the power of this technology? So yes, I, I used to work on artificial intelligence problems at Microsoft. Specifically, I, I was on the Microsoft translation team where we built machine learning products that were able to convert speech, text, 
and images from one language to speech, text, and images in another language in a fairly automated way across about 60 or so different languages. And then we offered the product as an app and as an API. And even back then, AI was making incredible strides quarter over quarter. In fact, back then, deep neural nets were pretty new and we were exploring how to use deep neural net technology to make translation highly contextual, extremely efficient, and essentially as close as possible to a human who could speak multiple languages and like that kind of human level translation quality. So I have personally always seen firsthand the power of artificial intelligence to solve very real problems and my conviction in this new trend of AI companies is extremely high. I do think it is a little bit hyped and I think there is no coincidence that the would-be crypto founders are now would-be AI founders. And with all things, I think this will be a hype cycle which will die. Having said that, the reason Luca is an AI company is not because we want to build an AI company. We, we see a problem that needs to be solved. Pricing is broken in retail. It is an important problem. There is a ton of margin and revenue upside retailers are leaving on the table. AI just happens to be the right tool to solve it. It is not, it's certainly not the only tool to solve it. So we are an AI company because we want to solve pricing. We are not a pricing company because we want to be an AI company. So I want to make sure that I kind of distinguish between those two. The second question people will often ask me is like, are you trying to build AI that replaces teams of humans in these companies who are making these decisions today? And I think that is the wrong way to talk about and think about AI. Like, oh, AI is not here to take your job. I think about AI as a decision-making brain that simplifies the human experience and makes the human decisions efficient and more effective. My job at Luca is to use artificial intelligence to essentially do your homework for you so that you can come in and say yes or no to the outcome of that AI and therefore have a little bit of more time to go do something else or think about other business critical things in your business. So yeah, if I could underline it, AI to, for the service of uh, human time and human decisions and not AI to replace humans. Oh, that makes sense. And I think it, it is, you know, that's kind of how I think about it as well. Like there is the hype cycle portion that's happening, but there are real time and real use cases of this technology that businesses need. Uh, you completed YC recently and, you know, obviously the whole ethos of YC is move fast and break things. Maybe talk a bit about that experience of going through Y Combinator here today in 2023. What is, what is the kind of ethos of that program? Like how, how much is it just go fast as possible? And mm -hmm. then also maybe talk a bit about you know, your, your application process and also how you, how you went through that process. Yeah. Um, 
So I'll start with saying YC was incredible and changed the trajectory of our company and how I think about building businesses. I have to admit, I was a little bit skeptical before I joined. I thought YC was for 21, 22 year old uh, kids who don't have too much work experience and are like fresh into the workforce. And that it wasn't a good fit for me who had a decade of corporate big tech experience. And like, I wouldn't get as much as I thought I would out of it. And I was very wrong. YC taught me more about building a business, finding product market fit, talking to customers, raising money than I could have in years of talking to people and trying to figure it out by myself. So it essentially is in the true sense an accelerator because it accelerated my learning and trajectory over the course of those three months. So couldn't recommend it enough to anyone who's on the fence because I certainly was and I stand corrected. In terms of the application process, I know there are people who spend a lot of time thinking about when to apply to YC or what to put into their application and spend weeks kind of reflecting on that. I spent about 12 hours writing our application after the deadline had passed. And it was essentially, I would call my application a brain dump of uh, everything I had in my brain about about the company and where I was at the moment. And my co-founder and I, we recorded a quick video and submitted our YC application. About a week later, we got an interview call. So I think my only recommendation for the YC application process is, one, don't overthink it. And two, as long as your thinking is clear, concise, you're upfront about what are your hypotheses, I think that will resonate. That makes sense. That's a great kind of answer to that question for a lot of, I know a lot of founders that go through that, you know, you spend all this time and it's really just about doing it, I, I would say, and expressively going after it. In addition to that, uh, and this is probably outside of YC, but how were you all, you know, when you designed this product and, and maybe you could speak at a high level, not detail, but how were you able to get the first customer? And, you know, with retail, you're going after, I'm assuming, larger, more enterprise level companies. How did you, how did you approach that in getting from zero to one? And maybe I don't know if you have 10 customers, but like, how did, how did you get the first customer and then how are you now building to build a playbook to continue to, to, to acquire customers for, for Luca? Um, I would say we're early enough that we haven't figured it out. But yes, you're right. We are looking to work with large retailers. So I define large retailers as people doing more than $50 million in annual revenue and, and kind of up from there. And then you kind of sub-segment that into mid-size and, and enterprise size. We started as most founders do, which is uh, my co-founder and I reached into our personal networks, our LinkedIn networks, our college alumni networks, and just looked for anyone who had anything to do with retail and started conversations there. And then had conversations that then subsequently resulted in follow-up conversations with people in their networks. So essentially, don't uh, there, you have an unrealized network 
in your own kind of LinkedIn college community networks that can be exercised and then use that to create like second, third degree connections. So that's how we got, got it, like got started in the beginning. We started to get some decent amount of inbound as soon as we went live on YC because there's a ton of people who look at YC companies and are curious about what products are being built. So we got some interest that way. And then a few of our first customers were within the YC community. So they were alums who had been through YC before and we were able to sell to that cohort. So what I'll say is, we are still on the hunt for our large marquee enterprise size customers. We have a few promising conversations that are pretty late stage, but we are currently iterating on our product with a few mid-sized customers who are super engaged, giving us feedback, telling us that they like something or don't like something for small sums of money, which to us right now is worth its weight in gold because we are learning a lot as we iterate with our early design partners. Awesome. And so to, to double down on that, I think selling to the enterprise early, and I believe this is part of our initial conversation, it's very hard, it's very difficult. But as we do move into a more restrained market where, you know, just signing up other startups is maybe not a sustainable way to build a venture scale business where you now may have to sacrifice the unlimited growth at all costs to sign up any customer where you're almost running like a Uber pool type in its early days product offering where you're signing up lots of customers, but they're not paying you much, if anything, but it looks good. And to get your next round of funding, you're going to have multiple logos. You all are probably in a position of a lot of startups now where you're maybe rethinking that and you're trying to work with design partners you're already establishing thresholds of 50 million or more in annual revenue is kind of like the sweet spot of where you want to target. How do you, and, in, and I know you guys are early as a, a team, but even then, how do you think about, hey, we have a few set of design customers that we want to work closely with that are paying us a nominal amount of money for us to go do it, but, and we're kind of experiencing it, experimenting and learning from them, but we also want to build a stable, predictable, sustainable business that in the case that we can't raise money ever again, we are going after large customers that can pay us enough money to sustain the business. How much friction is there there from, from the current way you guys are kind of growing your business? And do you think about that a lot as a CEO or is that something that, you know, you think is a down the road issue? Um, honestly, what you're asking now is the stuff that keeps me up at night. Can we have repeatable sales? Can we build a network where we have enough of like a backlog of customers who want to use our platform that we are like up and running within weeks with the customers and we're not there yet. It is a hard time for SaaS businesses. People are cutting costs and SaaS is often the first to go. The way we've set ourselves apart is what we do immediately adds value to the bottom line and the top line. And furthermore, if we don't, we offer you your money back. And that has been something I've experimented with a lot and it's been resonating because what a CFO in a large company wants to hear is show me the ROI. Like let's say we are a $100,000 contract. We have to show that we create at least $100,000 annualized, if not more for our contract to be worth it. And then we are willing to put the guarantee of money back 
against our technology because we know that our technology can create value. And that's how we have been able to gain some early traction with customers who maybe otherwise might not have been interested in paying for yet another SaaS solution. Mm -hmm. So it so it very much pertains, and I think this is, I think it's what's fascinating about commerce businesses is you are very, very, in a way, transactional at a standpoint of like, how does this SaaS add money to your bank account? And like, that's the test of it. Do you find, do you find that that is a sustainable way to approach it? And is that how you will continue to approach it? Or do you think right now you're trying to test that out? And then if it's not, you'll figure out other areas to be kind of the, you know, essential part of the business. Like how, how much do you have to think through that? And I mean, you come from this space of pricing, AB testing. So I'm assuming you've thought through this, but like how much of it is, like how much does that drive the success of, of what you all are building? So because we are a pricing product, if our solution is has stopped adding revenue and measurable margin impact to your business, you should stop using us. Like we're not the likes of like Zoom or Notion where we are a productivity tool. We are a revenue tool. If the revenue tool doesn't create revenue, then our product doesn't work. So I don't want to make generic statements because we haven't been doing this for long enough. But to me, money back guarantee seems logical because we should stand behind our technology. And if we are unable to create that value, then we should go work on something else because our pricing solution doesn't work. So I I stand behind our pricing philosophy, which is we charge for value created. Gotcha. That makes sense. Awesome. Scaling back off just product business building. You live here in San Francisco. Uh, you guys are early team. You even mentioned on the call that you believe in inner, you know, face to face kind of old school way of working, which seems to be coming back now. Uh, talk a bit about that and how you've adapted to that as we've come out of pandemic where, you know, everybody was remote. I mean, we're doing this remotely, but working close and face to face, how big is that a deal breaker for how you all are planning to build out Luca? I am an incredibly strong believer in in-person work. I think nothing replaces the team dynamic of being in the same room, being able to like tap someone on the shoulder and brainstorm something on a whiteboard in person. It's also what builds strong teams with strong cohesive cultures where there aren't pockets of people who operate or behave in ways that are that don't adhere to the company values. So very strong believer in in-person work. One anecdote I'll add is my husband is a mechanical engineer. He used to work at Tesla and now he works at a startup called Zipline. And throughout his career, he has only worked in person because he's a mechanical engineer and he has to work with his hands and he has to work on physical products. And I will just say, I observe the level of productivity he's able to create on his teams because all of them work in person, do happy hours every week, hang out after work, have conversations outside of the professional context. And I just couldn't duplicate that for my software-based teams at previous employers remotely. 
I just believe that you need to be in person. And like, I think I have very strong conviction, which is why we are building Luca as an in-person company. Uh, that, that, that's great. And other general things we t- typically talk about in a stretch for, obviously we've had a great conversation around the product building Luca. You definitely have a very, uh, you're very sharp in thinking about these things. How do you take care of yourself and how, mm-hmm. how, how do you think about that from being a founder? Like this is obviously your first company, but uh, as you could see, it's very excruciating working through these things, being told no hundreds of times a month, if not more, but yeah. having to kind of endure and then building a product and, and, and all these things. How do you take care of yourself from health and wellness, personal finance, making sure, you know, we live here in San Francisco, quite expensive. What are your what are your ways that as a founder you've established to to allow yourself to continue to perform and then also take care of yourself so you're able to do your best? I think I'm lucky in the fact that my I call them my bench, like my bench is very full. It's my husband, my parents, my friends who create an incredibly strong support system which means if I'm having a bad day or if something, I got a no when I was expecting a yes, I always have someone I can text and call. And I think if someone is considering being a founder, just take a look at who's on your bench and whether they will be the support system you expect them to be once you start on this journey. In terms of my day-to-day processes around physical and mental health, I'll say that they suck and I'm trying to figure it out. I was just joking with my co-founder today that I've put on like five pounds over the course of Y Combinator. I am trying to get out more. I enjoy running. So I'm trying to schedule time on my calendar ahead on Sundays where I make sure that I have my workout planned for the week. So I'm trying small, like incremental habit changes to make myself better, but I'm certainly no role model here myself. Yeah. Yes, we all are. I'm, I'm trying. I'm <laughs> planning for a half marathon in July, and it's it's an ongoing process to to keep up the the pace. Last few questions. You all raised, a, a, I think, publicly around two point seven million in your seed. Two point five. Two point five yeah. million in your seed round. Maybe give the TDLR of that fundraise. Who you decided to to raise with? If you can give any other metrics, how many investors you pitched versus how many committed and how many gave you term sheets and kind of what was that process like for you fundraising for the first time? So I will say that uh, going into the fundraise, I didn't know what I was getting into. What I knew was I wanted to wrap it up quickly. I didn't want to be in a place where I was fundraising for months and months, trying to find the right terms and raise some obscene amounts of money. I wanted investors who shared my values and saw the market the way I saw it, shared kind of the vision for the space. And lastly, I wanted to make sure that overall, I was investing in the future of the company, which means I wanted to work with investors who, if they had conviction in us, could come in and raise our Series A, Series B with us and be along with us for the journey. And we're not in, in it for the short term. So those are kind of the overarching kind of principles I was going after. I scheduled, I would say, upwards of 100 calls over three weeks. This is prior to demo day on YC. And essentially, I was doing back-to-back calls, like eight to 10 calls a day, 
pitching, asking questions. Uh, and honestly, it was the most physically exhausting three weeks of my life. We closed at the end of those three weeks uh, with Mendo Ventures leading. And we found an incredible partner in Ankur. Ankur Arya is one of the partners at Menlo Ventures. And what I can say about the conversation with Ankur is I knew from the first five minutes of speaking with him that he was excited. Like when I told, when I talked to him about Luca and the vision, he was just engaged. He was leaning in. He was asking questions. He asked to see a demo. He was the only investor who asked me to send him credentials for the app so he could play around with it himself after the call. And it was just clear there was chemistry and there was like, he was interested. And uh, it kind of showed up in the terms he gave us eventually. Like he was just excited about the space. That's the signal I consistently saw. Like that level of enthusiasm is the signal I consistently saw in everyone who ended up on our cap table. So if I had to summarize this with investors, their job is to seem excited in every call and they're doing 10 calls a day. So it's easy for founders to feel like people really like you and are very interested in your company. And you should start to decipher between like the habitual, like default enthusiasm versus people who are really engaged and excited. And once I started to be able to tell the difference, I knew who to go after and who to really pitch hard. And that's what you should be looking for. Awesome. That's a great analysis of fundraising. Uh, last question on that. So were you all, so you would tell founders, if you're speaking to early stage founders, have a demo environment ready and look for investors who want to go through your demo, actually want to play with the technology, figure out if it works, how it works. Uh, that's something you optimize for in your fundraising. And I'm asking that question because one of my friends uh, who recently completed YC had similar suggestions. I'm assuming that must be a YC ethos is to have the demo ready at all times and, and, and optimize for that. Is that. Would that be true? I would strongly suggest yes. I think investors need to see a real product that's usable. So if your product is a little bit more complicated and you don't actually want to give people credentials, like have screenshots, have a demo video you can share with people. But I think really showing that the product exists um, and is tangible, it can go very far away in the seed process. Awesome. Great. Well, Tanvi, it's been great talking with you. Um, definitely, this is a point of the uh, show where we want founders to let other folks know where to found it where to find them. If someone's made it to this point in the process, they definitely are probably interested in learning more about yourself uh, as well as Luca. So how can people reach out to you, retailers? How, how would they get in contact with you and, and find out about uh, more about Luca? Yeah, they can write to me at tanvi at the rate askluca.com. And you can check us out at askluca.com. And I appreciate, Matt, you asked really thoughtful questions and you seem like genuinely interested in diving deep into the space and my personal story. So I, I really enjoyed talking about my journey so far with you. Awesome. Tanvi, it's been great. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, we definitely look forward to watch your company and continue to work with those retailers. And uh, we are very excited to have you as part of the Stretch4 community as a guest. And we hope to have you back on uh, sometime in the future. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Matt. Bye. All right. 
That is a great interview. Definitely check out Tamp and her company, Luca. Also excited for more episodes like this where I get to interview founders. And it's always fascinating to experience an interview with a founder who I got to meet before they started their company as well and as learning more about their company after they actually launched. And Tanvi's very interesting because we initially got to introduce ourselves to each other when she was looking for an idea. And to see her go from idea to starting the company, completing YC in the matter of six to seven months is quite interesting and quite fascinating. Uh, other things to mention, expecting to, again, do these podcasts two times a week starting next week uh, or starting this week, actually, with a founder interview. Always check out the stretch4.substack.com newsletter for newsletter editions. I've been a little bit behind on those, but trying to pick that up as well and continue to produce very, very valuable content for the community. Uh, again, check out previous podcast episodes. Stretch 4 Podcast is both on Apple and on Spotify. Uh, and also, please leave reviews for the podcast both on those sites as well as or in those apps, as well as emailing me feedback directly as we try to improve this content and make it accessible. Upcoming events for me today, I'm presenting, doing a live demonstration of Modern Tax 2.0 here in San Francisco at the Finnovate Spring Conference. So if you're a bank, if you're a fintech, or if you're any in any financial, you're offering any type of financial solutions, I would love to talk to you. Uh, next month in June, I will be taking a trip out to uh, Minnesota, Minneapolis, in Minnesota for the first time. I'll be at the on-ramp conference there, which is hosted by Generator. So would love to meet you if you are participating in any events that relate to financial services, Money 2020, InsureTech in the fall, be at both of those events. So excited to meet people, talk to people. That's it for the Stretch 4 podcast, episode nine. I'm out.